those of us who, who met together last night at uh, Bodhacharya, we spoke at least some, to some extent about some of the qualities, the heart qualities, the qualities that give real sustenance and uh, richness and meaning to our life that, that we long for. We spoke about love, peace, understanding, freeness of being. And we'll, we'll touch on those qualities more, maybe in different ways, uh, tomorrow. I'd like to also give some, some attention today to, to the longing itself and how we can attend to that longing. How we can attend to, to desire, right? give it its ordinary name, without you know, these two extremes, what we could call the worldly extreme and the so-called spiritual extreme. You know, the worldly extreme of just kind of being pulled around by all our desires. Right? That's the kind of it's the habit easily goes in that direction, and the culture easily pushes us in that direction. Right? Advertising is always you know, to have what you want, get what you want. Look, you should want this. You could, if you get this, have this, do this, you'll become like this. And then this picture of somebody looking glamorous and successful and happy and wealthy. Based on who knows what. They've just, there's a, in the town near where I live, they've just built a new retirement home. And there's a picture of this impossible elderly couple like, they're incredibly good looking and they're like, they're like looking very self-satisfied with their arms around each other as they look off into the distance, you know. He's got these probably photoshopped blue eyes in the, in the thing and he's kind of just, you know, incredibly good looking. He sort of looks about 35 but he's got white hair, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> And then the impossibly good-looking partner, and the two of them just—they just sort of gazing off into the thing, and that's the advertisement for this retirement home. And it's hard to believe there's anybody in that place that looks anything like that couple. So there's the there's the the worldly pull, and then the seduction of that, right? And you know, to some extent. It, Anybody who engages in a practice like this, it's because, to some extent, we've kind of, we've seen the, what, not the futility of that, because it it's, makes sense to us, it's important in life, we, we need to, we have to, and there can be a lot of juice, actually, in pursuing that which seems helpful to pursue. Also, a lot of pleasure and delight in, um, in uh, you know, doing those things and having those things and pursuing those things that are rich and enjoyable for us. And yet, we also see there's a kind of, you know, what in Buddhism is called samsara, which contemporary language we might call the hamster wheel. You know, it just keeps on going. The, the belief is, the sort of unexamined belief, oh, if I had that, oh, that would be lovely. Oh, I'd feel okay. But of course, actually, in the end, we do get it. We get it, oh, but it doesn't last very long before, oh, and then you know, something else, something else, something else to want. So it's not, 
contrary, I would say, to some, some views we might hear about in some spiritual traditions, particularly the more ascetic traditions, right? And Buddhism certainly has a lot of an ascetic background to it. It's not that we're trying to stop or cut off that process. That's what happens when we go get caught in the other extreme, right? Which we could call the sort of the pseudo-spiritual extreme of trying to somehow annihilate desire, shut off desire, transcend. More spiritual language, you say, transcend desire, right? as if transcend means I'm going to lift off somewhere and be so high and clear and pure that the desire will just drop away. So, the problem is, with both of those extremes, is we don't really engage with desire. And the first version, worldly version, we're so fixated on the object of desire, right, with what I want and the pursuit of it, we're not attending to what the process is actually like, what's happening, how we might engage more skillfully with it, and I would say, what might be actually important, dynamic, lively, beautiful, creative in that. And the second extreme, we don't engage with it because we're somehow busy making it wrong in somehow and trying to you know, squash it, pacify it, get away from it, transcend it. So, the middle way, we might say, to use Buddhist language, Right? Without just the pursuing or the squashing, what if we were actually to be interested in, in the moment of desire, in our longing, in the process itself? What's it like? What's not just the thing we want, but what's wanting like? What's uh, longing like? What's desire like? It can be like different things, right? It can be, there can be a quality of impatience to it. Right? The more compelled our desire is, the more uh, kind of itchy it feels. The more we're in conflict with our desire, the more uncomfortable it feels. Right? In conflict with means I want it, but I don't think I should want it. Right? I want it, but I know it's not very good for me. Right? And so there's this kind of, uh, 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 oh, yeah, oh, no, yes, but oh, no. And they kind of push and pull. That's a, that's a, that's a you know, it's a, it's a difficult kind of wanting. But if we can engage very directly with that. Because it's uncomfortable, that which is uncomfortable, we tend not to engage with. That which is uncomfortable, we either want to get rid of it, right? spiritual extreme, or... What's the other way we try to get rid of the uncomfortable desire? Oh, let me just have the thing, and then the desire will go away. Which it does, right? Really briefly, until it comes back again. And we can get into kind of, you know, that, that sort of addictive, that's the cycle of addiction, right? Want, you know, we feel bad in some way. We want something which we think will make us feel better. We sort of don't like the fact that we want it. So we take the thing, consume the thing, to know the peace from the, the wanting, and then, oh, we feel bad about the fact that we've done that, and then off we go again, round and round. I remember you know, talking to somebody about smoking. Right? So you can see that loop going on in smoking. You can see the desire, I really want, we say, or we hear people say, oh, I really want a cigarette, I really want a cigarette. What if you tend to the, to the wanting? 
and particularly, Buddha points to this a lot, to attending to the before, the during and the after. Very helpful. You're attending to the wanting. So you want the cigarette, rather than going straight to the cigarette, one can apply this to all kinds of things, just let yourself feel the wanting. There's all kinds of things going on. There's the sense of something's missing. A sense of some form of being incomplete. There's the projection of completeness or satisfaction or fulfilment onto the object. Whatever the object is. In this case, the smoking. Or if, if I was with that person. Or if I had that you know, thing, that experience, etc. Or whatever it is. But particularly things that come around a lot. Right? And cigarettes, relationship to food, for some people it's difficult with that, or relationship to, to shopping in some ways, whatever it might be. And things that come around a lot, the more opportunities we have to really get familiar with the process. Right? So that, that I really want a cigarette moment, or I really want a whatever it is, actually attending to it, feeling the, the heat of it, the prickliness of it, the strength of it. It's amazing how much energy there is in desire. And then the during, with the smoking, encouraging somebody to actually, you know, because with some ambivalent relationship with smoking, once one's given in to it, oh, okay, I'll have one. The, the tendency immediately is to move away, to go unconscious in some way. What if you really let yourself feel, in theory, really let yourself enjoy it? Ironically, though, the more you really give yourself permission to enjoy it, the more you really allow yourself, okay, enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) It's not actually that enjoyable. There's things that we have an ambivalent relationship with. The enjoyment is often there in the beforehand. The fantasy of is full of enjoyment. And then the the actual during may not be so full of enjoyment. That's really helpful. What? I was going to say helpful information, but it's not about information. It's, it's embodied experience. It's really helpful to let yourself really feel that relationship with. A friend of mine um, who teaches mindfulness classes. You know MBSR the courses I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Beginning of an MBSR course, for one of the first uh, mindfulness exercises is with the raisin, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to taste the raisin. It's just an example of how really bringing attention to something and you notice the raisin. There's the before, the during, and the after. So a friend of mine, I can't remember what reason, maybe he'd run out of raisins, I don't know what the raisin was, but they decided to use um, potato chips instead of <laughs> raisins. Partly, I think, maybe they didn't like raisins, but they really liked potato chips. This person said, so oh, we'll use potato chips for the exercise. It'd be great. And nice, that, it's a nice, hit, salty flavour. Great. So they brought, didn't do a test run, right? <laughs> Just brought them into the class. <laughs> so you potato chips. And then he was quite excited about this potato chip thing they were doing. And then found themselves on oh, potato chips before, yeah, potato chips, and then put it in. And then he's just telling me about this, describing it. He's like, oh, I spent my life really liking potato chips. 
And then I really ate one really mindfully, and it's like sort of fatty, salty, and then it goes soggy on the tongue. (laughs) Didn't actually change his relationship to potato chips. So who knows how useful that that exercise is, right? Didn't really change the relationship. But you know, when you give really giving attention to something, open it up in a different kind of way. And I certainly know people who that's really that process, really committing to that as a practice, the before, the during, and the after, has really changed their relationship to smoking. So interesting to see how the, the, the force of wanting and the belief in the wanting. Right? We know philosophically that cigarette or that thing I want to eat or that experience, we know philosophically that's not actually going to provide a lifetime's worth of fulfillment. Of course we know. But when you really attend to the, the before part and how, how strongly the, the desire is going in that direction, when you really let yourself feel the kind of the tunnel vision Right, where the, everything's gone, bird song or forget it, right, body, uh, the rest of bodily life, forget it. It's like, it's like, you see how you've re- you can reduce all of this just to that, that one thing. And again, without making it wrong, just the learning about the process, and then to see how that, how the strength of that belief in the thing can change so much. The difference between the fantasy about, the idea about, the, the image of the thing f- suffused with desire, and then the actual experience of the thing. On the other hand, there may also be those things that we really enjoy. The desire is that, oh, I want, and then we get, and then, oh. And to actually be around, to enjoy it. To let yourself enjoy, to learn the art of enjoying some of us are really poor at enjoying. I often I notice that on retreats, right, on meditation retreat with lunch, lunch is the great shining beacon of the day. On the retreat, and maybe it was today as well. It's like oh, meditation, meditation, lunch. <laughs> like we were saying, not much stimulation right, in the practice, and a lot of stimulation in, in the lunch. And maybe you know, those of you who've been on retreats, how fixated, especially the first retreat or few, or many, that one does, right? How fixated one can be on the mealtime. Oh yeah, lunch. And then, magic. Lunch bell rings. Right? And we go to lunch, and we're excited, and, and yet, as soon as we have the lunch, it's like, you maybe taste the first mouthful, and then you're off. Maybe you're off just to thinking about seconds. Right? <laughs> but, but rather than actually, well, hey, if you've spent all morning anticipating lunch, to, to actually take it in. Take, to take in pleasure. To take in enjoyment. You know, our bodies really, really, really like pleasure. But often we're engaged so much with the idea of it We've been engaged so much with the idea of having it, getting it. Again, we're, we're kind of so fixated on the, the fantasy of it. When we get there, we're then still engaging the same pattern. We're moving on to the fantasy of the next moment or the next thing. And that also, that's, that's very freeing. 
right? letting yourself enjoy enjoy that which is there to be enjoyed enjoying lunch if that's what it is enjoying we were speaking last night with somebody about enjoying the springtime One has to see for oneself, I think. We have different styles of relationship to, um, to, to pleasure and to that cycle of wanting. And some of us, it's, it's, um, it goes for whatever reason, and maybe we can find those reasons in our history, and maybe we can't so easily. But we have to, for some of us, it's a, it's a smoother process than others. Some of us have to be really vigilant around our wanting. Right. Those of you who've been in any kind of addictive uh, cycle, and classically like around the 12 steps work and recovery work, it's really clearly seen for people who've gotten very intensely into that difficult cycle, that that vigilance has to be kind of absolute. And the ways of supporting that then, like actually having other people to be accounted to, accountable to, having a sponsor, right, in, in the 12-step work, etc. There was, uh, some of you have been on the Yatras in France with me so for, for some years, and they still happen now, though I'm not so involved, we do these long walks through France for some weeks, walking in single file and silence, and then having teachings and you know, Sangha hanging out together. And the very first one of those, it must have been 2001, we walked from our centre down in the Pyrenees to Plum Village, the, the centre of Thich Nhat Hanh. It took us three weeks walking through the French countryside. It's beautiful. And one night, on about, about two weeks in, a guy went out to, who was on the actual with us, a lovely guy, went out to, the, to a bar and got really, really, really drunk. Really, really drunk. And came back at like four o'clock in the morning, singing and shouting and tripping over tent, tents. And you know, you've got this kind of very beautiful atmosphere of two weeks of kind of people being very spiritual together. And then this guy's in a really, really in a terrible mess. Terrible mess. And, you know, so I was taking care of him. And first we just tried to, you know, have him just be a little quiet and get him to sleep. And then the next day, of course, he was filled with shame and all kinds of di- other difficult things. And you know, he, he was in recovery, right, from, from a lot of difficulty with alcohol dependency. And then he's been in this environment with all this feeling of goodness and support and feeling conscious and feeling healthy and feeling happy. And how easy then... Happiness, the kind of euphoria of happiness, it's like we don't know what to do with it, right? We don't know how to contain it. Mm-hmm. And so then, and you know, I think that's one of the, the practices actually letting ourselves just allow pleasure, joy, delight to kind of stream through ourselves without having to do anything to it. Uh, Aaron Bell was reminding me yesterday of this, this term I speak about, this, this uh, Buddhist word mudita, which means literally means joy, delight, appreciation. And the way I describe it sometimes is as if the feeling is of champagne in the heart. Right? It has this kind of fizzy quality. And how interesting that we use champagne as a celebratory drink. 
Right? And there's something about those fine, you know, champagne has very fine bubbles. The, the teetotalers might say, well, Perrier is better, <laughs> let's stick to Perrier. But Perrier has big bubbles, doesn't it? <laughs> Badois has smaller bubbles, but that. <laughs> now this is the French side coming up. <laughs> but champagne has really, very fine bubbles, and that sense of a kind of the fizzing of delight in the heart. And the way to, to let ourselves taste and allow and really, really bathe in the delight. Joy, ease, gratitude, wonder. There's plenty of sources for those things. There's plenty of ways in which those things are triggered through our, for us throughout the day. And yet how easily, like this guy was finding, and this is a, it's a kind of extreme example, right, but we can see it on our own scale in whatever way, how easily in which enjoyment, excitement, it's like we don't know how to contain it, and then it, it spills out into needing to do something. And in his case, he says, oh, I was feeling so good, so conscious, so clear. I thought to myself, I'll just have one conscious drink. And of course it was only one conscious drink, because <laughs> the first one was more or less conscious, but after the second one was less conscious, and then etc., etc., etc. So it, it, it can sound a little grandiose, right, when we're speaking about the true heart's longing, but actually... And that's why I give these kind of examples of whether it's potato chips or cigarettes or, uh, or one's just habitual relationship to wherever one seeks pleasure. There's a lot one can learn about how that works. A lot of ways we start to learn that just as we give attention, especially in the before part, the more we give attention to the way desire moves in us, the more we start to learn about the fixating on the object, the more we start to feel that fixation and see, do I need to do that? The more we start to kind of be loose around that, the more we can allow the, the dynamism of desire. Like I said, it's a very essential part of, of, of our human experience. The more we start to have some actual discernment about, well, what do I actually want to support? What do I want to want, you might say? What makes sense to move towards? And then there's that aspect of, so, yeah, so first of all, just that, it's really an encouragement to not dismiss our small wantings, not dismiss the, the, the little fixations. Because, you know, how are you going to live a, a, a normal life? a conventional life, an engaged life, a busy life, an urban life, without a, uh, and, and it be really a transformational practice without attending to these little longings. They're constantly bouncing around. They're constantly getting stimulated all day long. And if we have some grandiose idea of, of that somehow doesn't involve those longings, we just that whole part of us gets split off from our practice and, you know, actually from our life. And so just, oh, it's like, what are the ways going about my working life, doing my shopping, engaging with partners, friends, etc., that, that I can attend 
for both small wantings in such a way as to learn some of these things, find out some of these things, open up some of these things. And then there are those, you know, those bigger longings. Those, what we might call spiritual longings, the kind of thing that, you know, where we care enough about depth and liberation and human possibility that we give our sunny weekend, springtime weekend in Berlin to come and sit down here. Sit and walk and listen and attend in this rather kind of simple way for two days. It's it's like to, to do this act, kind of activity for this weekend, it's an expression of that, uh, of that certain longing for depth. And again, I think that just that has its own rhythm or season. It moves in us in different ways according to whatever reason. Partly just our character, I think. For me, that, that longing was very, very strong as a teenager. And when I first went to Asia and started sitting long retreats, it was, it was kind of all-consuming for a while. It just burnt up all my other longings. I went to India when I was 19, and I stayed a, certainly the first year and a half, when I was basically just doing long retreats the whole time. I didn't have any... My libido, for example, just kind of disappeared. It just, and that was like I was 19. You know? like, how did that happen? Where did it go? But it somehow just got subsumed into this spiritual longing. I didn't really care. I didn't care about uh, food much. I didn't care about comfort very much. I didn't care if I was cold. I didn't. I just didn't care about much else at all. It was like the strength, and for that season, the strength of of uh, what I did care about. This sense of, you know, kind of the possibility of Dharma practice. Was it, the the longing for that was so powerful and so all-consuming that all these other sort of all these other also powerful longings got you know the, the the wish to be comfortable the wish for gratification whether through food or sex or anything else they just got burned up in, in into that. But before I get you know start to sound therefore too kind of <laughs> spiritual. You know, the, the, there was so much, the, the longing, there was, there was still a very strong sense of object, right? There was a very strong sense of enlightenment as the object. So, you know, sex, food, comfort, but enlightenment, you know. And I just found that I just made an object out of, um, yeah of dharma practice or out of depth, out of, out of freeness, which can't be reduced to an object. There is nowhere we're supposed to arrive at. That's why I don't really like, nowadays, I don't like the word enlightenment at all. It's the it's munt, just like I was talking about the dum of freedom yesterday, you know. The munt of enlightenment isn't very helpful. It, it makes it sound like a, a destination, something fixed, some place of arrival. And I think um, awakening is a much, much better term for the process and the, and the fruition 
this practice, right? Awakening is present continuous mm-hmm. verb. Awakening, awakening. And so we can we can awaken right here. We can awaken to this. Awakening and awakening and awakening without some without it being reduced to an object. Awakening is happening here. Enlightenment seems to be there. And so, despite the, you know, the, the, the sincerity and the, the intensity of, of my practice in those days, it was very much focused. There was a lot of rejection going on, a lot of rejection of myself, a lot of rejection of, uh, of my mind, a lot of, and a lot of kind of unhelpful fixation actually on, the, on an object of desire. It just happened to be a spiritual object of desire. And we might again see for ourselves in whatever our relationship to this practice is and the way it shapes our life or defines our life or provides some context or orientation for our life, what's the relationship to where we think we're headed? What's, what is the longing around it? And to what extent is the longing of our spiritual lives a longing that's somehow pointed elsewhere? Or, to what extent can it be a longing that points us you know, back to ourselves? Like I was saying in the meditation, medita- like I was saying during the meditation. Meditation is an expression of our longing to be fully with life. And therefore the practice of meditation is the practice of honouring that longing, attending to that longing, giving ourselves to that longing. The more the object of our longing, the more that which we're longing for can be here, the simpler things are. It's easier to find what's here than than to seek around looking for something that's far away, for what's there. And... Let's see what time is. And just to give some thought as well, you know, I've mentioned sexual longing a little bit, but I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about desire, right? The language of desire more than of longing in in Buddhist teachings, but there's very little talk about sex and lust and sexual desire, as if hmm, I don't want to go there. Which again is kind of is a bit weird, actually. Right? If we want to tend to desire, given just you know, given how much of our uh, how much attention, how much energy, how much fantasy, how much intensity can happen in the realms of sexual desire, how much beauty and intimacy and love and connection and sweetness can happen through sexual desire, and how much hurt and damage and mistrust and abuse and difficulty. In other words, given just what a charged field that is, how come we leave it out so much? You know, sometimes I think that, yeah, well, I certainly I've learned a lot 
from just attending to the way sexual... So that thing where I said my libido disappeared, that didn't last. <laughs> it lasted like the first year and a half. And then, oh, <laughs> it came back. And the way we can just really learn from attending to how sexual desire, whatever our relationship situation, you can learn a lot of it about attending to desire if you're not in relationship. And you can learn a lot about attending to desire if you are in relationship. You can learn a lot about, uh, about attending to desire when, that, when sexual desire gets consummated. You can learn a lot about attending to desire when it doesn't get consummated. You can learn a lot about taking in pleasure. I learn a lot about that difference between, like we were just saying, between the kind of the fantasy objects of what we what we think sex could be like, should be like, ought to be like, what a partner should be like, and then actually the coming into what it is like. Mm-hmm. There's more I was going to say about that, but it escapes me now. And you can fill in there. The gaps in your own inquiry. So, th- these reflections really are, are leading up to just uh, wanting to invite you to explore the question. Right? And, uh, like I've said a couple of times, in, in the most simple language, exploring longing or desire, we might formulate as this question, what do I really want? What do I really want? And last night we were saying how the question itself is much more important than a particular answer. You know, because an answer seems like a fixed thing, a dead thing, and shuts down the inquiry in some ways, except it's not, right? Because one moment's answer just disappears, and then there's another moment's answer. That's one of the beautiful things I think about inquiry dialogues is you can you can let yourself just go through answers without holding to them or without being held to them. So what do you really want? What do you really want? Please don't start rehearsing your answers now. <laughs> Take in the question, like we've been saying, right? just let the question land in the moment that it's asked. It's what a fantastic thing to be really given the opportunity, asked by someone, hey, what do you really want? And then see what comes and just let it come out. It's not being recorded. <laughs> and I'll ask you, you know, never to speak about the, these things, what you've heard from the other not to repeat it out once the exercise is finished. And therefore, just feel free to see what comes. You might be surprised by what comes. It's, kind of, it's quite helpful to not self-censor. But if you've, something comes and you're too shy to say it, that's okay, you don't have to say it. But let yourself register the answer internally. And then as much as possible, do speak it out. Because it's, it's actually, it has a, there's another kind of potency to not just recognising something inwardly, but actually hearing yourself give voice to it and having it be heard and witnessed. Right. 
And it may be a very short answer, maybe just a, a few words, or it may be, have some development to it. Oh, when I hear the question, I really notice that it's this that comes forward. And as I say that, oh, I can feel that, etc. And then when you're done, the, pers- the person who's been asking says, thank you. What do you really want? Right? And so you have some minutes just to repeat the question again and again. And uh, if you're the person questioning, you're just asking it as if for the first time each time. And as the answer, you're just letting it land and see what comes. And as you're answering, you really let yourself attune not just to what it is you're saying, but what it's like. What's it like to just actually just sit in that place where you're really making room for what I really want? What happens when you notice particular answers come? Is it, do, you, do you find yourself really able to make room for what I really want? To be able to really feel, oh, what I really want is... Or it might be, well, what I really want now is to use the loo. Right? Okay, maybe that's true, right? You don't have to steer towards some spiritual uh, place. Let it be real. Is, is there room for what you really want? Or do you notice the tendency to somehow shut down as if... It, oh, I shouldn't be wanting that. Is it difficult to allow that to come forth? If it's difficult, what kind of difficult? So, 90% of the exercise, whether you're asking the question or whether you're answering the question, 90% of the exercise is listening. You're just listening. You listen to the question. And you listen to what comes out. And then you speak it out. Listen to what happens in you as the answer comes forth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.